Hey, welcome everybody to the Rocky Top Mountaintop Pastoral Podcast, where we ascend the mountain of God dressed in UT orange. Oh gosh, <laughs> as, as a Commodore, I find that incredibly offensive. Uh, I know, but I'm trying hard to come up with a podcast name that works for us. Just... As a Taylor Trojan, I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Well, guys, welcome. I think we're in week six now of moving from meeting together as a community and doing these podcasts to give our folks teaching of the word. But what are you missing about our people being together? Man, there's just something sacred and magical about corporately gathering. There's something that I deeply miss about not just seeing our people, but being with our people. So uh, this podcast has been great. I know for a lot of folks, we're hearing encouraging things, but I long for the day when we can uh, not be doing it this way. Yeah, I miss worshiping with people, getting to hear other people's voices sing and celebrate after we get to open the word together and, and before we do that. I miss that a lot. I miss seeing their faces and instead have the substitute of your faces, which right. is <laughs> not nearly substitute. as good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that I can't, I'm blanking on the reference where it talks about teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs that really we're doing the best we can with things like podcasts and virtual online small groups, but there is no replacement for the body of people gathering, and it isn't what it it can be because we're not together. And so I'm hoping and prayerful and, and anticipating that this will only stir our desire and our affection and our anticipation for that day uh, when we can all be back together. So I know that's happening for me. So we are recording this podcast a couple of weeks in advance uh, because we're not real sure what's coming down the road. So if this podcast doesn't seem to be fitting with what may be happening currently when this is released, just understand this was done prior. But right now, the hospitals don't seem to be overwhelmed, and our folks are quarantining and trying to just pray that this would pass over our city and not real sure what's going to happen. But I know that we all long for the day that we can come back to worship again, and I know many of you are staying connected to your small groups, which is encouraging and loving on each other, and we're hearing amazing stories of our people praying for each other and stepping in and giving each other encouragement and just carrying the load as a community. So way to go, Midtown. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So today we're going to be diving into another passage from the book of Luke that we've been studying, and we just came out of Easter, and that was in Luke chapter 24, but we're going back now to where we left off before we jumped into Passion Week, and we're going to be tackling Luke chapter 10. So which of you guys is our reader for today? I've got it. Uh, This is Luke 10, verse 25 through 37, the parable of the Good Samaritan. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, 
came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. What a great story from Scripture and gives us some great insight into not only who Jesus is, but what Jesus came to do. So let's dive into the story, guys, and start with this guy who is a lawyer. Well, the law for ancient Israelite or an ancient Jew would have certainly been uh, related to the Torah, their Old Testament law, which is what that word means, Torah. This is a lawyer of Scripture. This is someone who is versed in Jewish sacred texts of the Old Testament. He is very well versed. He's very astute in what the Jewish law requires of him. And so there's this new teacher. He calls Jesus teacher. There's this new teacher who's also teaching about these Old Testament realities and using these Old Testament texts. And so the lawyer is here to challenge Jesus initially, that this lawyer knows his Old Testament, and this new teacher, this new rabbi, Jesus, is seeming to teach about the Old Testament. And so this guy's trying to trap him. It says there in verse 25, trying to test him. So he wants to catch Jesus in a wrong answer so that he can dismiss Jesus. But buried in that, you actually see the lawyer's heart, too. Uh, not only does he want to test Jesus, he's saying, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Meaning, give me the ability to save myself and give me the to-do list that I must perform in order to be safe. Yeah, and his answer, maybe you guys could give us a little insight about, was this just a random answer that he was giving, or when he said what is written in the law, what is he referring to here? This is the Shema, isn't it? I think that's how you how you say that. It's a well-known Israelite prayer they would have said two times at least a day. So this was a well-worn answer for the lawyer, that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so that's part of why the lawyer pushes the question to the next phase, right? Jesus says, well, yeah, of of course, that's the answer to eternal life. And then the lawyer pushes it a step further by asking, well, who's my neighbor? Yeah, the Bible here says that, but he desiring to justify himself, which what an interesting use of words here. What does he mean here, bud, that he's trying to justify himself? Yeah, I mean, when Jesus asked him earlier, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And you see there, he says, wanting to justify himself. You know, I think that the way that the lawyer is navigating this interaction with Jesus is symbolic of the way that he is navigating the law, which is, is I'm reading and I'm going to interpret the law in a manner that can justify me and that puts me in a position where I can live into that presupposition that I literally can do something by my own merit or by my own effort or by my own behavior that can give me the capacity to inherit eternal life. Yeah, the one commentator I read this week was basically saying he shows his cards and actually turns his whole argument upside down by the way he phrases the question, what must I do to inherit? Mm-hmm. The very nature of inheriting something, you actually can't do anything to inherit. Inheriting something is a gift that you didn't do anything Uh, You belong to a certain family and you inherit from that family. You can't perform to inherit. Inheriting assumes it being a gift. And so he's already kind of revealing what's going on in his heart that we're told in verse 29, he wants to justify himself. And I think 
What self-justification always wants to do is get really, really specific, which is why he says, who exactly is my neighbor? Like, let me boil this down so that I can feel okay about how I'm doing. It's one of the indicators for all of us that we're attempting self-justification is where do I want, like, very, very specific things, minimally specific things to feel okay about how I'm doing. When you look at this story, you see that they, he started out trying to put Jesus to the test, and it seems like now uh, he's the one that's being tested. And we all do this. I mean, we all feel like our lives are a test to see whether or not we're going to pass or fail. And are we going to do it right? Are we going to do it wrong? Are we going to succeed? Are we going to not succeed? Are we going to love or not love? Be loved, not loved? Like, and it all seems like that we can boil our whole lives down to this journey of justification. And I think about that, I do that all the time in my own life, and that I will go throughout my life finding and storing up evidence in my evidence files <laughs> that proves that I'm right. Yes. I mean, I could, I could tell you so many stories. I was doing this this morning, replaying a conversation I had yesterday and wondering, did I do that conversation the right way? And why do we want to be so right? Why is that so important to us? Mm. Well, I think the you know, the consequences of being wrong and the experience of being on the wrong side are real. Many times when I find myself on the wrong side uh, or when I've, I've handled something wrong, my experience is that I don't get handled the way that Jesus handles me with the compassion that he handles me and my sin with. I get what would have been reserved for me if Jesus hadn't done what he did, which was his wrath and mm -hmm. judgment. <laughs> So I think there's just a lot of fear of getting it wrong because getting it wrong usually leads to a lot of pain mm. and uh, a lot of hurt. And so I don't believe anybody will love me even if I'm not doing something right to be loved. Mm. Uh, my wife and I are watching this new show on Hulu called Little Fires Everywhere, Reese Witherspoon. And she said last night in the episode, being right is better than sex because sex lasts for a couple of minutes, but being right lasts a lifetime. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's powerful because so many of us suffer from chronic shame. That shame is a different thing than guilt. Guilt tells me I've done something wrong. Shame tells me that I am something wrong. And to live with that reality is so difficult. If I set up a system of justification to prove that I'm right, then I don't have to face that there's something deeply wrong with me mm -hmm. and that I don't have the capacity to fix that. And so this lawyer is coming to Jesus and right off the bat, he's exposing his lack and even maybe hiding behind his position as lawyer to cover up even his own shame mm -hmm. and his inability to have or to fix himself in the way that Jesus came to fix him. Are you suggesting that self-justification is potentially the greatest indicator that I am living in shame? I just know that I have a tremendous capacity to justify myself. And I was telling these guys earlier, one of the examples was a number of years ago, my wife called me because she had run out of gas. And it upset me so much because I could not possibly comprehend how anybody can run out of gas. Like you have a gas gauge right there on your screen <laughs> and now you're interrupting my day to where I have to go get you gas in a gas can. And I was fuming. I was angry about having to serve her in that way. And believe it or not, the next week I ran out of gas. Shocking. And for her, I had nothing but anger and contempt. But for me, you know what I did? I laughed I because I gave myself a complete pass on where I wouldn't give her a pass. You and Satan laughed together. 
I'm just such a master of justifying my own behavior, which also means I have such clarity about your behavior. The poison of that, the deception that I have about you and the deception I have about me, mm. and mingle that into the recipe with shame, and now it becomes this toxic cocktail that has blinded me to what life really is all about. And mm. we're seeing this lawyer here who Jesus knows he's blind, and he knows that he's broken, and he's set up this system by the law so he can feel better about himself, so good about himself that he can test the second member of the Trinity. And yet this second member of the Trinity has compassion on him and moves toward him through this story instead of crushing him and moving away from him. It's important for us to acknowledge that there are all kinds of ways that we build up our own systems like that lawyer. Yeah, It may not look like respecting Old Testament law. In fact, for a lot of people, that's the opposite of what you would want to do to justify yourself. But make no mistake, we all have, whether we're religious or not religious, systems that we've built up to justify ourselves. And they're all ways of dealing with a shame problem that, like you said, Randy, is really an eternal problem, an existential problem, a problem that's way bigger than we can wrap our minds around. And so the issue isn't, no, we should just not believe in shame. Shame is a problem. It's just a way bigger problem than we are willing to admit. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it goes all the way back to the garden and the fall and the fact that I think we all, whether we want to admit it or not, fundamentally know that something is broken and that I was made to be told by somebody outside of myself that I love you and you belong. And since that moment in redemptive history, man has been either working hard to earn that verdict or stepping into what we just talked about at Easter, which is, is that that verdict of you belong and you are loved and you are justified isn't about you keeping uh, the law. It's that it was kept completely for you. So uh, we're about to dive into this, but I just said something, and I think, Dave, you're saying it too, is that we're about to experience the kindness of Jesus when historically this passage really hasn't been a story of kindness. It's been just another way to try to justify ourselves, you know, by are you a good neighbor? And, uh, you know, there's a lot of shame with that question mm. because it's hard to answer that question if you know yourself well by saying yes. So we never measure up yeah, like I think the lawyer. Dave, what you talked about at the beginning, how many different interpretations and narratives we have about this story. I think it's so helpful that the lawyer, Luke, is adamant in two different ways. Both of the lawyer's questions expose why Jesus tells this story. To think about this story as a uprooting of the attempts to self-justify mm. puts us in a totally different category. So I'm excited to walk through it. Yeah, spoiler alert. This story is not about go out and do more. This is about something much deeper. So let's dive into the story and see what beautiful grace Jesus has for his church. Mm. So what are you guys seeing here? What's the significance of some of the details? So yeah, this story, this uh, man goes down from Jerusalem to Jericho, which was a common, uh, not just kind of economic, but also personal route. Everyone went up to Jerusalem for all kinds of spiritual uh, and economic reasons. So this man's on the Jericho Road, and he is met with robbers, which was common on the Jericho Road, and he's laying basically half dead, I mean, on the side of the road, stripped, naked, completely helpless. And Jesus introduces these characters that walk by him. It would not have been abnormal for these characters to walk by him either. And he kind of starts at this top of the spiritual hierarchy. A priest, the most pious, the holiest in the Jewish spiritual system, walks by him and uh, ignores him. 
passes by on the other side. And there is maybe a stark uh, realization at this point that why is this priest avoiding him? Maybe there's some understandable ceremonial reasons, but oh, now a Levite, now the next ranking spiritual person has passed by. And this would have been kind of a a lay leader from the tribe of Levi um, who would have had some spiritual authority and spiritual influence. And he passes him by. And so the crowd is all waiting for is anyone going to help this man? And then Jesus throws the punch of the story. Yeah, Jesus says that then the Samaritan comes by. And Samaritans were traditionally, well, to say they're the huge enemies of the Jews isn't quite right. The Jews thought of the Samaritans as their enemies, that they disdained the way that they worshiped. They disdained everything about them, that spending time with a Samaritan was a great offense to their culture. And this is the man, and I think this is important, and it hit me when I was reading the story this time, The Samaritan is not the person receiving the help. The Samaritan is the person doing the helping. When I was reading one of the the prayers that would be prayed by a Jew would be that God would not remember the Samaritans at the resurrection. So this wasn't just like, hey, we kind of don't like each other. The way Samaria 400 years earlier had intermarried with the Assyrians and the Jewish mind kind of polluted the purity of, of the religious fidelity of Israel uh, was such an offense that there was 400 years of animosity that had been building between these groups of people. So when he throws out the Samaritan, he's throwing out the worst case scenario for this Jewish lawyer. Yeah, here. the Samaritan would have encapsulated all the different categories that we tend to hate people on or judge people by religious difference, ethnic difference, racial difference, political difference, like all of it is wrapped up in this one body of people. And so not only does Jesus say the Samaritan helped this guy on the side of the road, he goes above and beyond. He, He is extravagant in his love for this helpless man on the side of the road. I mean, it says that he poured oil and wine on his wounds. So we got a few options for what those things are. Maybe this is a merchant who is going and like in the course of his job is using all of his goods that he's about to go sell to take care of this man, or it's his own nourishment for his journey that he's giving up to benefit this other person. And then one commentator I read too, not only the cost that this man, he's tender with him. It says he sees him and he's moved with compassion. He's full of love for this man. Then he spends all this money on him at the end. One commentator noted when this Samaritan man who is hated by all Jews rolls into Jericho with a half dead Jew on his donkey, that man is now putting himself in danger. What's everybody going to think about this Samaritan that rolls into town? He is now putting himself in grave danger to save this man. He even offers to pay for it if the man breaks into the pistachios and the alcohol at the minibar, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> for the innkeeper, he says, whatever expenses he incurs, mm. even if he goes to the spa, I will pay for it. <laughs> Which uh, is amazing. Jesus is setting up this ridiculous scenario where the impossible hero becomes the hero, and he's a hero in such a way that it's at his own risk, at his own expense and it's at his own extravagant expense and then jesus asks a question which i always cringe whenever i'm reading the gospel and jesus asks a question he says which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers and he said the one who showed him mercy i just imagine the lawyer saying it through gritted teeth right Samaritan. but yeah. <laughs> I, I would love for you guys to talk because the question the lawyer asked this that's not the question that jesus answered in fact 
here at the end of the story, Jesus changes the question. Yeah, it seems as though the question goes from, you know, who is my neighbor? You know, the, the original question. The original question, him asking, like, effectively, who don't I have to love? Mm-hmm. Who's it okay for me to love and who don't I have to love? To Jesus flipping that and saying, who do you now have the opportunity to love and to be a neighbor to you? So yeah, he's changing the yeah, question for from sure. A, um, let's look at the world around you and let's pick the people that you have to be <laughs> kind to so you can justify yourself to now let's stand in front of the mirror and ask yourself, are you a loving person? Mm-hmm. Are you a neighbor? And then Jesus says, go and do likewise. And we talked about this earlier about what's all balled up in this one statement from Jesus, you go and do likewise. Well, what we know from earlier is this man is seeking to justify himself. And so he's looking for Jesus to give him a definition of neighbor that is graspable, that he can achieve. Maybe it stretches him a little bit, but he wants to know, what do I have to do to be able to check off the box that I've loved my neighbor and now I can have eternal life? Mm. And Jesus m- moves the goalposts on him. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like he, he, you were saying this earlier, it's like he moves the, the space that he has to, the jump he has to make on his motorcycle and now it's across the Grand Canyon and it's right. never going to happen. Mm-hmm. Brand, what you were just saying, I mean, it's like in Matthew 5, where Jesus expounding on the law, he says, you've heard it said, which is similar to what he's saying to this teacher, like, you have this interpretation of law, but but I say to you, uh, which is, is I'm, I'm the one who gave the law. I was there when it was written. <laughs> I want you to not just love those who are easy to love or love those who love you, but because of the depth of what I've done for you, you actually have the capacity now to even love people who are your enemies. Mm-hmm. And he's driving this guy really to the depth of not just the letter of the law, but the heart of the law, which is, is I'm not sure I've got the heart in and of myself to actually do this. Yeah. What's amazing, I think, even in our cultural moment, is that this story has so saturated the way that we think about our world, is that nobody, in at least in our current postmodern moment would say that it's, everybody would say it's a good thing to love your enemies. We would all admit, oh, of, of course, that's such a noble thing. We all would look at Jesus and say, what a great teaching. But what we are all very adept at doing is creating our own ideologies that make the people on the outside of our group evil. And we all have reasons why those people aren't people we actually have to love. Mm-hmm. And what Jesus is exposing even in us now is that that gap for us is far greater than we could ever reach. Mm -hmm. That even our ideology of love is not strong enough. It it actually blinds us in many ways to our ability, each of us, regardless of whether you believe in Jesus or not, to love people to the degree that we even say they should be loved. Yeah, Jesus had to tell a story that would get the self-justifying man to a place where he would not ask another question. (laughs) Well, so tell me, Elliot, I mean, this doesn't seem like loving kindness, which we started out saying, this is what a story is about. This seems like Jesus saying, yeah, jump the Grand Canyon and you'll be saved. Do the impossible. Mm -hmm. How is that kindness and full of compassion for Jesus to expose in this guy and also in us? Well, I think that's the mastery of Jesus, the teacher, who's also Jesus, the Redeemer. If this man would have the eyes and the ears and the heart to receive what Jesus is saying, what Jesus is saying in this really subversive but really powerful way is, lawyer, do you know that in all of your attempts to self-justify, you are like this man on the side of the road? 
that your attempts to try to make yourself okay with the checklist and to prove your rightness has actually turned you into this man who is helpless, beat up, and half-naked without hope. And what you need, lawyer, is someone to come from the outside to heal your wounds, to spend his goods on you, and to risk his own life for you and to save you and bring you to health. So the invitation here is not for this man to enter further shame. This invitation is for this man to deal with reality, which is, hey, you, you, you're going to need someone to come and save you, and you're only going to get there when you can admit you can't jump the Grand Canyon. I know, Randy, I, even in our in our friendship over the years, at a few different junctures, you've told me, I have something hard to tell you, <laughs> but the wounds from a friend, Proverbs says, can be trusted. And so that in some ways he's, he is wounding this lawyer. He's putting the scalpel in and he's making an, an incision to expose the reality of his heart. And he's doing that as a kindness, like God's kindness leads us to repentance or, you know, it says an honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. This is a forceful kiss, but he's really, you know, bringing this guy close uh, to reality to see himself so that it's possible for him to receive what Elliot, you just said, which is this, that I need something to be done for me. This isn't about what do I need to do. I need you, Jesus, not Jesus teacher, Jesus Messiah, Jesus Lord, Jesus Redeemer to do something for me. As Carl uh, Bart said, our Jesus is the Jesus who both uncovers and covers our folly. Like, I have to uncover it so that I can cover it. I have to show you who you really are so that you'll let me be the Good Samaritan to you. And Jesus is as extravagant with us. He's more extravagant with us even than this Samaritan is with the man in the story, right? Jesus, who came from the outside into our world, who freely spent his resources on us, who not only put himself at great risk, but didn't expose himself to the possibility of being killed, who was killed so that we could experience the extravagant love that he has for us. I think that maybe this time where we're not meeting together as a community may give us an opportunity as a community to experience something that's harder to do when we're all together. Because sometimes we tend to trust religion and we tend to trust our routine of going to church on Sunday and we tend to trust that guy up there that seems to know everything called the preacher. And yet in the story, none of those things come to the rescue of this man. Only Jesus has the capacity to come and bring healing and to restore life. And during this season, I'd love for you guys to talk about how can your community allow themselves to be cared for by Jesus like this? Mm. How do we, as his kids, how do we stop justifying and simply start receiving the Lord's anointing us with oil and with wine and with kindness and extravagance and compassion? Mm. I think the most comforting thing about Jesus, the greatest Samaritan, one of the most powerful things is verse 33. But a Samaritan, if we imagine this to be the ultimate picture of Jesus as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, had compassion. I think that what's in this corona quarantine isolation season is that Jesus is the first mover. Like this guy didn't get up off the road to go to the Samaritan. The Samaritan came to him. It says it again in verse 34, he went to him and bound up his wounds. It's what isolation does to me, but it, it's what the hardest step of the Christian faith maybe is, is letting myself be loved by Jesus. But when the isolation pulls all the things away from me that I want to justify myself with, maybe the gift is, is that I would let myself be loved by Jesus because we're told right here, he moves first. 
So where I am is not an accident. Right. So is it possible that where you are listening to this right now, you're exactly where you need to be for Jesus to come your way? Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think I mentioned, or we were talking earlier and I was mind was drawn to Psalm 42, where it says, deep calls to deep, all your waves and your breakers have swept over me, that God is in the storm of this. He's calling to us to the depth of our hearts from the depth of his heart and calling us to deeper waters and to deeper intimacy with him. And I think for me, one of the struggles is, you know, yes, Jesus, here I am, help, like move towards me. But when Jesus moves towards me, I I feel like the Samaritan on the road who wants to give Jesus the list of how I want him to take care of me. (laughs) I don't like, you know, did you put me up in the penthouse or did you put me up in like, you know, the Motel 6. Motel 6 and... You know, the picture here is this guy is in a position where he, on the side of the road, can't and doesn't say, this is what taking care of me looks like. He's surrendered that in his helpless state. He's not in a position to even say that. And he's simply letting the Samaritan, and as we've said, you know, Jesus, the greatest Samaritan, take care of him as he decides. Mm. And I think for me, that's been one of the hardest things in this season is, it's not just letting Jesus move towards me, but then when he's moving towards me, receiving how he wants to care for me when in many ways that may not be how I want him to care for me, which kind of brings me back to the, I'm the lawyer trying to justify myself and tell Jesus what to do versus letting him yeah, the, be who he is. Yeah, you asked about, is this loving or not? Like, is it loving? I'm imagining I'll get group guidelines going. I'll, I'll use an I statement. Like, one of the things I love to justify myself with is that I'm a really good dad. Um one of the things that Corona is exposing when I have to be a dad nonstop 24-7 is maybe I'm not as good of a dad as I thought I was. <laughs> and so is it possible that it's loving for Jesus to remove the places that I love to justify myself with and that Corona quarantine is doing that and that maybe I would get to a place, Dave, that would say, okay, I'll stop telling you how to love on me. Mm-hmm. I'll stop telling you how to bind up my wounds and, and I'll let you do what you want to do with me. I want to give people two challenges for the way that you might think about this. Some of us are so used to other people taking care of us that the idea of Jesus directly ministering to us through the word, through prayer, mm-hmm. is something that we can't even fathom, that it's it's terrifying to us. And that part of the invitation for being cared for by Jesus in this season is not texting everybody else for their prayers, is not looking for inspirational quotes to feed on but actually being quiet and still with the Lord ourselves. Then there are others of us who are so content of in that place of isolation that the last thing we would ever want to do is ask for help. <laughs> and Jesus does tell us that one of the primary ways that he cares for us is through his people. And that you actually, I actually, to use a nice statement, deprive other people in our community the opportunity to experience Jesus if I refuse to share my need. That when you're listening to this podcast, you may be wondering, how am I going to make ends meet this week? Because I have a bill coming due on my car that I can't pay. You know, there are people in our community who want to help you with that. And part of allowing Jesus to care for you is voicing your need and letting other people respond and not controlling how they respond. It's not promising, hey, in three months, don't worry when I get back on my feet, I'll be ready to pay. It's like, hey, just accept the care that Jesus provides for you for the people around you regardless of whether that care comes in the way that you may or may not define for them that you want to receive it. 
So what a beautiful story that this Jesus that we serve is the one who binds our wounds. He's the one that brings us from sickness to health. He even does better than that. He brings us from death to life and declares himself as the good Samaritan. He's the sacrificial servant who went to the cross and counted all joy, joy to go to the cross. But then he rose again that he could give us newness of life. And I'd like for us to talk a little bit about, does this resolve us from ever being a good Samaritan? If Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan, is this story, and it's all about his grace, where does that leave us as the church? Do we just do nothing? Man, it's the magic and the beauty of Jesus. No, it actually makes us good Samaritans. Right. It makes us good neighbors because as you and Dave invite us often to do, Randy, to use our redeemed biblical imaginations like play this story out to the following weeks or the following months or years for this man who was left on the side of the road and then bound up by this good Samaritan, taken to a, a place to stay and be healed at no cost to himself. A, how do you think he treated people who he saw on the side of the road going forward? But B, how do you think he treated Samaritans going forward? Right. The very people that all these listeners would have hated Jesus is telling them how to become a good neighbor. It's just not the way that they think. And we've been talking a lot at East about, you know, how do we be good neighbors? How do we see our neighbors? And, and the question that I wrestle with so often and that I hear people wrestling with is, okay, well, but what do I do? Tell me, just tell me the plan. Just give me the steps. I'm like, no, no, no. And what I feel like the Lord is so often encouraging me with and is encouraging our community in is, man, we, there's so much freedom to go out and ask Jesus, who is in front of me? Who are you putting in my life that you're calling me to care for? Jesus, how do you want me to care for them? And I get to be creative with you in following you in that. And I'm probably going to mess it up. I'm probably going to say the wrong thing. I'm probably going to do the wrong thing sometimes or or maybe in my own attempt to justify myself what may feel like the wrong thing. And instead of obsessing over the right way to do it or who is the right person to love, following Jesus out in the adventure of loving the people around me. We go out into the world not to seek to justify ourselves. We go out in the world because we have been justified. We don't go out to try to prove our worth. We go out because our worth has already been proven by Jesus. And I'm reminded of that passage. I think it's in First Timothy that says, we've not been given a spirit of fear. That's not from the Lord. That is not from him. That's not what he does to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. What he has done is he's given us a spirit of power. He's given us a spirit of love, and he's given us a spirit of self-control. And in these uncertain times, and we're not real sure what's happening in real time right now as you're listening to this, but what we do know is that we are the church. And as the church, we've been given these powerful gifts of power, love, and self-control so that we can go into the world as those that have been healed by the Good Samaritan and go out now and be the Good Samaritan, whatever form that may be taken, however the Lord is leading us to be that. So we pray that for our church, we pray that for us, and we pray that God would not only be glorified in these trying, beautiful times, but that he would be proven to be good, not only in your life, but in the lives of those that you touch. All right, let me pray. Lord, thank you. It's so clear that when we slow down and pause that we, we're the helpless ones on the side of the road. We are the ones who are in need of such mercy. And so, Lord, I pray for a fresh taste of that, Lord, that you would you'd move towards us, uh, that you'd take pity on us, Lord, in our weakness and in our need, uh, that you'd minister deeply spiritually to our hearts, filling them up to the full measure uh, with the grace and love and mercy uh, that you pour freely into our lives, Lord. And 
set us free. We would be people who have creative and open hearts and minds and eyes to the world around us that is desperately uh, in need of seeing a incarnate, in flesh picture of what your love looks like. And you do that through us who you say were your ambassadors, the ambassadors of reconciliation. Lord, make us into those ambassadors uh, this week and in the weeks to come. We love you. In your name, amen. 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 Hey, folks, uh, just want to remind you that even though we're not meeting together as a congregation, our small groups are still meeting. In fact, uh, they're meeting on Zoom platforms uh, as well as other social medias. And I want to encourage you that if you're not in a small group, this is a great time for you to join a small group and jump into uh, getting to know some of our folks and being encouraged and maturing in your own faith. So hopefully you'll take advantage of that. Go online at midtownfellowship.org. And there's lots of opportunities for you to join a small group.